morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 9. It's page 223 of the Bibles that, that hopefully should be in the pews. Uh, during October, we have spent uh, four Sunday mornings shadowing the new leader of the Israelites. Joshua has taken over from Moses and has been given this incredible privilege and responsibility of leading God's people into the promised land. Life after 40 years of wandering round in circles is over and has now become focused, exciting, scary and intentional, which in a sense is what life after 40 should be. Uh, But also that's a great description of what I think the Christian life should be. Focused, exciting, scary and intentional. And the people's mission is relatively clear. They've got to enter the land, in a sense wreck all around them, wipe out all the inhabitants and take possession of the land. And Jericho is first on the hit list. And it gets raised to the ground in rather a bizarre fashion. And every resident is annihilated. Men, women, young and old, apart from a prostitute, or should I say, a woman of faith and her family. And AI is next to be attacked and destroyed. Although initially, as we heard last week, 3,000 Israelites were sent running for their lives and 36 of them were actually killed. And the reason for that major blip was sin. One Israelite called Achan decides to do things his own way. He decides to ignore God's guidelines in true Adam and Eve style and he ends up being stoned to death along with his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys and his sheep in the valley of disaster. But once disobedience was addressed and ruthlessly sorted, life as it was meant to be and the mission continued. And just as an aside, sin has this amazing ability to jeopardize and derail everything. And therefore it needs to be dealt with harshly. Now this morning I'm meant to cover Joshua chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11 and chapter 12. And so you know the way before certain TV programs there comes that announcement that says this program may contain, right? Well here is uh, this morning's warning. This sermon may contain far too much material in far too little detail and leave far too many questions unanswered. Okay, so there's the disclaimer right at the start. We're going to spend most of our time uh, actually in Joshua chapter 9. So if you have, as I say, a copy of God's Word, let's pick up the story. And we're going to read at least the first couple of verses at this stage. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, and these things being the destruction of Jericho, the destruction of Ai, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon, that is, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. Now, that seems like a reasonable plan. 
And the reason I say it seems like a reasonable plan is this. Jericho on its own had been destroyed. AI on its own had been destroyed. So safety in numbers seems like a sensible way forward. So an alliance is formed. But there's one group who aren't convinced. Have a look at verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard, that, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Now, that's not exactly a familiar word. At least it isn't to me. They resorted to a ruse. And what that means is they resorted to a trick, a deception, a stunt. Now let's listen to the Gibeonite scam. Verse 4 again, 4b through to 7. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and they wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. And then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hevites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? Now I need to pause at this point. And I need to go to Exodus 34 verse 12. Where it says, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going. Or they will be a snare among you. And clearly, the Israelites remembered that advice. They remembered that instruction. And so, in a sense, they smelt a rat. Verses 8 to 13. We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you? And where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country Because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him. All that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites. East of Jordan. Sihon king of Heshbon. And Og king of Bashan. Who reigned in Ashtoreth. And our elders and those living in our country. Said to us take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them. We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now, see, it's dry and it's mouldy. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and our sandals are worn out from our very long journey. Now what you've got to realize is this sounds incredibly convincing. And so Joshua plus the leaders decide to make a treaty. Make a treaty of peace to say to these people, okay, we're going to let you live. And we're going to ratify or we're going to endorse, we're going to sanction our uh, treaty with an oath. Now let's read verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty, the Israelites heard that the Gibeonites were neighbours living near them. Wick. So this whole, we came from a distant country, was a bare-faced lie. And the whole, our clothes are worn out, and our bread is all gone mouldy, was an elaborate hoax. 
the Israelites have been reeled in. Now let me ask you a question. How do you feel about the Gibeonites? Are you appalled by them? Or are you slightly impressed? Try to put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you're sitting up in the hill country. And you're just sitting there waiting for this terrifying army to roll up to your door. Now remember, according to verse 3, these people were well aware of what Joshua and the Israelites had done to Jericho. They knew exactly what Joshua and the Israelites had done to Ai. And so you're sitting there and you're waiting for them to arrive. What would you do? Would you fight or would you get creative? Well, let's jump down to verse 22. And we're going to read from there to the end. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servants to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that's why we did this. We are now in your hands. So do to us whatever seems good and right. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and did not kill them. And that day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Now, as Christians, surely we can never condone dishonesty and deception. And yet it worked. And therefore, this story poses us with a real dilemma. I've read a number of different takes on this incident during the week. And one of the key conclusions that that comes across from most biblical uh, commentators is this. Dishonesty may work temporarily, but it can never be justified as a permanent solution to whatever difficult situation you find yourself in. Plus, many biblical commentators will say that because of their cheek, because of their trickery, they were, there were consequences. So if you look at verse 23, it actually says that Joshua placed them under a curse. But, let's be honest. You were staring annihilation in the face. And the option was wood cutting and water carrying. Which would you choose? Is that really a curse? Now, I know they could have come clean. They could have told the truth, and all the truth and nothing but the truth, and they could have hoped against all hope that if they did tell the truth that they were neighbours and that they did request peace, that the Israelites may have had sympathy on them, but they didn't do that, so there's no point going there. The fact is, and that's, this is why I love the Bible, and I love the stories in the Bible. The fact is, they pulled a fast one and they survived. And so let me ask you again, how do you feel about the Gibeonites? 
Well, I find myself caught on this one because part of me, and please challenge me up, part of me can't help but admire their ingenuity. Their initiative, their inventiveness, their creativity. And yet there's another part of me that really struggles with this. It really struggles with what they did. They got something they didn't deserve. And that doesn't seem fair. And that doesn't seem right. And in fact, that rattles me. And yet the minute I say that, am I not confronted with an aspect of God's character, a core feature of the Christian faith that often seems scandalous to me and outrageous. And that is, I'm here, we're back there again, grace. Is this not another example of the amazing grace of God, which constantly leaks out from the pages of Scripture, and it creeps up on us when we least expect it? Are we sympathetic to the plight of the Gibeonites? And are we actually glad to see them gain salvation, even by dishonest means? Or are we sitting here this morning and we begrudge their preservation because we perceive that they are undeserving and they are dishonest. How do you feel about the Gibeonites? You see, I think we do find it difficult whenever we watch someone get something we're convinced they don't deserve. It sticks in our throats. The deathbed conversion. The prodigal who's welcomed home and made a real fuss off and a party's thrown for them. Or what about prostitutes that appear in the faith hall of fame? And yet, whenever I think about this, which one of us, and I include myself here, which one of us this morning actually could say or would say, I deserve the grace of God? Because I know I don't. And therefore, what this story has done to me this week is it has confronted me again with the extravagant grace of God, which just creeps up on me when I least expect it. And I just want to say, thank you, God, for your grace, that you even welcome outsiders, not according to my agenda, not according to my rules, Not on my basis of whether they should be accepted or not. But somehow, God, in your grace, you embrace people that I don't understand why you embrace. But that's because you've embraced me. And I don't deserve it. In fact, none of us do. Now, please hear me on this. I am not attempting to deny or to downplay the ethical, moral, and difficult dimension of what they did. It was wrong. Please please hear me in this. It was wrong. But am I more troubled by that issue than I actually am thankful that God welcomed them and accepted them and allowed them to be saved? And in saying that again, I don't want anybody to leave here this morning thinking that I condone this or that the Bible condones this practice. There are lots of biblical examples of tricksters. Lots of biblical examples of people who tried to be dishonest and to deceive. 
and who suffered consequences. The reality is some consequences were more severe than others. Take, for example, Jacob. He tricked his dad by pretending to be his hairy brother. And he stole his brother's birthright. Did he get away with it? Did he? There were consequences. Had to run for his life. He had to be on the receiving end of dishonest treachery from his uncle Laban. Or what about King David? A man after God's own heart, but a man who was dishonest, a man who deceived, a man who tried to cover up his dishonesty and his deception. And there were consequences for him. He ended up being publicly embarrassed via God's spokesperson, the prophet Nathan. Or what about Ananias and Sapphira? The couple who tried to pull the wool over the local church's eyes in regarding what they gave. And they tried to deceive and they tried to be dishonest and they thought no one's going to find out. And within the space of three hours of each other, they both have dropped dead. So I'm not, and the Bible never excuses or condones dishonesty and deception. But the Gibeonite story reminds us that there is a God in heaven who is a God of grace. Do you know, if only it was black and white as opposed to shades of grey. Now for those who were, uh, quickly need to move on, get away from that. Now for those who were following closely, you will have noticed that I missed a couple of key sections of this chapter. And I just want to really touch very briefly on them. And I'm actually going to cut back on what I was going to say. But let's leave the Gibeonites for a moment. And let's actually turn our attention away from them to the Israelites. Because look at verse 14. Because what we discover here is that the people of God committed a serious error. Okay, the Gibeonites messed up. They were dishonest. They were deceiving. But the people of God messed up. Let's read verse 14 together. It says, The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. And if you have a Bible, if you can flick back to Numbers 27. Because in Numbers 27, it talks about the handover from Moses to Joshua. And it's being discussed and advice is being given. But have a look at verse 21 of Numbers 27. It says this, He, that is Joshua, is to stand before Eliezer the priest who will obtain decisions for him. And if Joshua ever needed wisdom, it was here in Joshua chapter 9. And yet, for whatever reason, Joshua chose to ignore this piece of advice. Joshua chose to ignore his one guaranteed source of wisdom. And before we're too hard on him, it is worth noting that he and the elders, because have a look at verse 7 and 8 back in Joshua chapter 9. In verses 7 and 8, it does say that Joshua challenged the Gibeonites. He did ask them questions. It wasn't that the, the Israelites and Joshua was careless in his decision. The problem was he was alone in his decision. It wasn't that Joshua didn't think. The problem was that Joshua didn't pray. Do you ever do that? Do you, do you ever find yourself faced with circumstances, faced with conditions, maybe even faced with dilemmas, and before you know it, you have made a decision. 
You have embarked on a course of action. You have headed in a certain direction without consulting your key source of wisdom. James 1.5 is such a well-known verse, and yet knowing a verse rather than living it is always a danger. That if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In other words, our source of wisdom is only a breath away. Our source of wisdom is only a prayer away. And yet, how often do I head down the he did not inquire of the Lord route? See, Joshua and the elders clearly thought, I can, do, I can deal with this one on my own. We, we've got this one sussed. We don't need to inquire of the Lord via the priest. We can just make this decision ourselves. And the problem was he ended up being deceived And as I look in my life, I wonder how many times have I ended up being deceived because I did not seek God's counsel, God's wisdom on a particular issue. Back to the text. Look at verse 18. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, uh, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against their leaders. Now let me ask you another question. Do you ever do that? Do you ever reckon your leaders have got it wrong? That they've been taken in? That they've been gullible? And then you complain about them? Now I'm not entirely sure where to go with that. (laughs) If anywhere. But for what it's worth, let me say this. Leaders and elders and pastors are only human. They will, and they do make mistakes. But for me, what happens next, and what this reveals about Israel's leaders, is the critical issue. Let's pick it up again in verse 19. But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do with them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. Do you know, at the end of the day, these were leaders of integrity. Yes, they had messed up. They didn't inquire of the Lord. But two wrongs don't make a right. Joshua and the elders had given their word to the Gibeonites that they would let them live. And now it's time for them to honour their Commitment. Their character, their integrity was now on the line. And one of the things I am becoming increasingly conscious of is the importance of integrity when it comes to leadership. Christian leadership, church leadership, or any other type of leadership. I came across this comment from Charles Ray during the week. Speaking in the context of the business world. In order to be successful in business, whether you work for a non-profit or for a profit organization in the private or the public sector, as a leader, integrity is one of your most important assets. In fact, I will go out on a limb and say it is the most important character trait. And he goes on to say this. Character and integrity in a leader is not something you can describe It is something that is demonstrated. 
And it shows in everything that the leader does and says. And so if you're here this morning and you're a leader in business. If you're here this morning and you are a leader of Windsor Baptist Church. If you're here this morning, you lead a ministry, you lead a group, you lead people. No one expects you to be perfect. But what we do long for you to be is men and women of integrity. Psalm 15.1 asks this question. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live in your holy hill? And the psalm, for those of you who know it, goes on to provide lots and lots of answers to that question. But here is one of the answers. He who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And you know, I have no doubt it hurt Joshua to keep his oath. It hurt the leaders to stick by their word. I mean, they might have had even a good grounds for breaking the oath. After all, they were deceived. So it would have been perfectly reasonable, surely, for them to break their oath. But they said, no, we're people of integrity. We're going to honor our commitment to the Gibeonites. And they made a brave choice, and it was an unpopular choice with the rest of the people. The people couldn't believe it. We're meant to just wipe out all the inhabitants, yet you're saying, don't kill these group, this group of people. But because they said, no... We're going to stick to our word, even though it hurts us. And in doing that, they maintained their integrity. Now at this point, we're up to chapter 10. And I was going to do lots of stuff all about reaffirmed promises. I was also going to deal with the whole issue of genocide. Uh, because Joshua, if you do get a chance this afternoon to read Joshua chapter 10 and 11, can I encourage you to do it? But be prepared to be disturbed by it. Be prepared to confront a God who hurls down hailstones from heaven which kills more people than Israelites' swords do. And whenever you come into these chapters in Joshua, there are lots of people who really struggle with the God of Joshua. And yet, and I will say this, quoting John Calvin, not somebody I quote that frequently, but quoting John Calvin, the annihilation of Jericho, and we could add AI to that, or any other place we read about in these chapters, might seem an inhumane massacre had it not been executed by the command of God. But as he, in whose hands are life and death, had justly doomed those nations to destruction. This puts an end to all discussion. Now you may or may not agree with that. But there could be another way of looking at this. What if the various kings and their cities had acted like Rahab? Or had acted like the Gibeonites? What if having heard about the God of Israel, which they all did, they chose to acknowledge his authority. They chose to seek peace. They chose to pull back from launching an all-out attack on the Israelites. Did they miss the opportunity to receive God's grace because of their choices? And in some ways, and I find this difficult to say this, but in some ways is this not still the issue and decision that's facing humanity? In the 21st century. God has made it clear. That those who refuse to acknowledge his authority. 
those who refuse to seek peace between themselves and God. Those who do not recognize his greatness and realize his call on their lives face the prospect of leaving their ultimate destiny in the hands of a God who will execute final judgment. Which, as I say, to a modern society, sticks in the throat. And yet a God of grace stands and says, I'm here and I invite you into relationship with me. We no longer need to be strangers. We no longer need to be enemies. We can be friends. Let's pray. Father, this morning I want to thank you for your word. It's such a breath of fresh air. Forgive us at times when we think we know it and don't allow our minds to be stretched by it. And I thank you for the story of the Gibeonites. And I know and I recognize that maybe it leaves us with many, many unanswered questions. And God, if I have caused any confusion, I pray that people will forget a lot of what I've said. But for the truth that there has been. And God, for the reminder that you are a God of grace. I stand here before you this morning and give you thanks and worship you. And I'm in awe of you. And God, as we continue to journey with Joshua and the Israelites into the promised land, may you continue to teach us so much more about who you are, what you have done, what you will do. And I thank you for the promise that we still have that Joshua was reminded of in chapter 10, that he wasn't to be afraid because you were still with him even though he had messed up. And God, for any who are here this morning and they feel they've messed up this week, I thank you for the reminder of your promise that you're still there with us. You're still for us. You're still on our side. You still love us. You still want what's best for us. May we embrace your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.